0: Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Jude chapter 20 is where we're going to be again this morning. I do want to give somewhat of a disclaimer. I find that perhaps the most difficult topic to preach on is prayer. I'm not exactly sure why that is, but it seems as if in my own mind, there's simply a level of intimacy in prayer that is difficult to convey and communicate inside of the pulpit. And I I say all of that to somewhat preface that I'm predominantly dealing with this morning the, the individual prayer of the Christian, will certainly see the concept of praying corporately and you'll notice and hopefully you even experience the reality that as you pray in a corporate setting or perhaps as you pray with a brother or sister, perhaps it is that you've received a phone call from a brother or sister in Christ that needed to pray for a moment with you. And the prayers that you have in those moments are, I think they, they, they rightly match the intimacy of the moment. But the reality is, for those of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, there really is no matching the intimacy between the Christian and his God, that there is meant to be a transparency, there's meant to be an authenticity, there's meant to be a true intimacy that takes place in the life of the Christian as he enters into and as she enjoys prayer. And so my hope this morning is to lay out to you the necessity of prayer, to hopefully communicate what prayer is and Really taking the intention of Jude to drive us to deeper and more frequent and more intimate prayer with our God so that we might be of appropriate use to the kingdom. And as we have already mentioned in our section of scripture that we're dealing with, and so that we might rightly contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, not void of the Spirit's power, but in the Spirit's power. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Jude, starting in verse 17 and making our way through verse 23, I would remind you, brothers, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Jude, starting in verse 17, says this, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come, we come in light of the reality that you are able to keep us. We come rejoicing in the fact that Christ's blood is able to wash and to cleanse and to even make us look and not only look, but truly be children who dine at your table. Lord, that we look like the family. And Father, I pray that as even we consider the topic of prayer, that you would encourage us, that you would spur us up, that you would give us a great zeal and delight in drawing near to the throne of grace. And Lord, that you would not only give us a zeal for enjoying the presence of God, but Lord, that you would give us a heart to labor there, to wrestle, to struggle, to strive in prayer with our great God and King. And Lord, may it be the joy and thrill of our soul. May it prepare us for heaven. And Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Like I said, what we'll do is we'll walk through a couple of things. I want to examine prayer first and foremost so that we understand what it is. And perhaps it is that the vast majority of this will be reminder for you, but I've already been reminded by Jude that a good practice of an apostle, a good practice of a minister of God is simply to remind the saints of that which is true. And so what I want to do is I want to teach just for a moment on what prayer actually is. Then I want to examine what we are to be praying for. And hopefully what you will see as we work through those concepts is that there really isn't anything that we should not be actively praying for. My basic argument is if you're thinking it, you should probably be praying it. And then finally, we'll look at the hindrances and helps to the faithful prayer life. And then hopefully what we'll do is take the entirety of what we've examined in prayer and bring it back into the book of Jude to understand why it is so necessary that we be faithful in prayer as we are faithfully contending. So with that said, let's examine what prayer is. And before we deal with that, I do want to highlight really two things that prayer is not. And this is uniquely important in our day and time. One of the interesting things I noticed as I was studying the commentaries on this particular text is as you began to make your way through history, there seemed to be a new argument that made its way in to this particular text, Basically, what I'm saying here is that praying in the Holy Spirit became an argument from the charismatic saying that praying in the Holy Spirit is essentially and only praying in the tongues that are mentioned so frequently in our day. Brothers and sisters, you do not need to speak in tongues to be able to draw near to the throne room of grace. As a matter of fact, I would say, even based upon the arguments of Paul in 1 Corinthians, that if you come speaking in a tongue, you are essentially puffing yourself up, not aiming to truly draw near, but instead putting up a pseudo shield. The reality is that the Christian in prayer draws near not with babble, but with transparency and intimacy, with clear language and clear words so that they can commune with their God. Praying in the Holy Spirit is not praying in a babbling tongue. No, praying in the Holy Spirit is praying intimately in light of the fact that the Spirit of God indwells you and brings you to the throne room of grace. Secondly, prayer is not a listening for the audible voice of God. Saints, the reality is that in our day and time, so many people are seeking after an audible voice of God. Brothers and sisters, we have the Word of God. Not only do we have the word of God, it has been written for us, laid out for us so that even the apostles can say that we have something more fully concerned than, more fully convinced than even the eyewitness accounts. When we come to the pages of sacred scripture, that is where we hear the voice of our God. And uh, one interesting preacher said it this way, if you desire to hear the word of God and hear it audibly, read the Bible out loud. And so when we come in prayer, we are not coming simply to hear an audible voice of God or seeking after that. We're not coming with a babbling tongue. Instead, we're coming, and in our coming, we are going to God. And this is the beauty of Christian prayer. It is essentially an outworking of Christian intimacy, That the reality is that if you be in the Lord Jesus Christ, our natural reaction and perhaps even our gut reaction is the same as that of a three-year-old who is in need. They call out to their father. They call out to their mother. They call out to those who will be of help and aid that will give them comfort and rest or protection and provision. And so what is Christian prayer? If I were to sum it up in the simplest way, prayer is going to God. It is drawing near. And what I want to do for just a moment is lay out the ways in which the scripture communicates what prayer is. What do we go to God for? When I was growing up, basically my understanding of prayer was that I go to God when I want something. Christian, this is a lackluster view of prayer because the reality is that if you go to God because you want something and for some reason God says no in his infinite wisdom and and providence, he says no to that, ultimately what you will find is a ceasing prayer life because it does not actually deliver what you want. Saints, we do not go to God simply to make our request known. Though we do that, we go to God first and foremost for enjoyment and delight in God's presence. This is never wanting in prayer. When we draw near to the throne room of grace, we are drawing near to that which as Psalm 16 tells us is truly and infinitely joyful and pleasurable. Psalm 16 verse 11 says this, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is prayer? Prayer is a going to God to enjoy and delight in his presence. This is what fuels, hear me saints, this is what fuels consistent prayer in the life of the Christian. It is not just a going to make request, though that is certainly the case. It is a going to God because we delight in his presence more than we delight in anything else. The reason that we are regularly drawn to prayer is because we love our God and delight in fellowship with him. It is a unique and glorious provision of the cross of Christ that we can draw near to God in prayer. And hear me, it is actually a drawing near. It is not a pseudo drawing near. It is a truly entering into the presence of our God. Oftentimes we forget that prayer is fellowship and we place it as something as secondary or pseudo. But in reality, when we are praying to our God, he has brought us by his spirit into the throne room of grace. There is real fellowship in prayer with our God. And in that place, there is, as Psalm 16 says, there is a fullness of joy and there are pleasures forevermore. Not only do we pray so that we might go to God and to enjoy his presence, but we go to God to pour out our hearts before him. Psalm 62, eight says this. Trust in him at all times, O peoples. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. A drawing near to God, a seeking the Lord in prayer is a wonderful opportunity, incredibly so, for the king to have his subjects pour their hearts out before him. This is unlike any earthly kingdom that our God delights to have us draw near, not only delights to have us draw near, but made the way so that we would be able to draw near. Because apart from the sending of the Son, apart from Christ's finished work, it was an impossibility for you to draw near to God. More so than that, how would you draw near to Him and then lay out your heart before Him, this heart that is desperately wicked? When we go to the Lord in prayer, we go as those who have been sanctified by the blood of Christ, and we go as His children, pouring out our hearts before Him. That is to say that there is a level of intimacy in prayer. And so we go to delight in his presence. We go to confess, to pour out our hearts and our souls before him, not in a just babbling of the tongue, not in a rehearsed prayer, but a truly pouring out of the soul before our God. I'm convinced that if the Christian did this more, we would speak far less of therapy and far more of prayer. That we go to our God, that we pour out our hearts before him, that we delight in him, that we confess our sins to him, that we confess our needs before him, not in some veiled way, but truly laying our souls before him to pour out our hearts before our great God and King. So prayer is a going to God for delight and for joy. Praying is a going to God to pour out our hearts before him. And prayer is a going to God to find mercy and help in times of need. Hebrews 4.16 let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Perhaps the sweetest and shortest prayer of the Christian is simply, Lord, help. I cannot tell you the amount of times in the normal course of life that that is needed to be uttered from the mouth of the Christian Because the reality is that we are always needy. We are always needing mercy and grace because we always find ourselves lackluster or at bare minimum we should. There should be not a drop of self-sufficiency in the Christian. It should be a total dependence upon the Spirit and upon our God. And so as we go to God, we go to God pleading, pleading with everything in us, Lord, grant me mercy and help in the midst of my utter need. And so we go to him and we plead with him and we enjoy his presence and we ask, Lord, grant us mercy and help in the midst of great difficulty. And further, we go to make our requests known to him. Philippians 4, 6, abundantly clear says this, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to him. I tell people often that Philippians 4, 6, most of the time is quoted without the last phrase of verse five. Verse five is crucial to our understanding of Philippians 4.6, the Lord is at hand is saying that he is near, that he is actually present. And as we draw near in prayer, we truly are going to him who is at hand. And so we make our requests known to him. We go to him saying, Lord, help. We ask for this unique provision. Perhaps it is comfort in the midst of difficulty. Perhaps it is that there is financial need. Perhaps it is that in the midst of an overwhelming sorrow, you simply need the good light of Christ. And so we go to him pleading and we trust that he is good and right and holy to give us that which we need. And in the midst of that, we see anxieties fail and falter because we trust our God is at hand. Not only do we go to make our request known, but perhaps the most frequent prayer of the Christian should be one of thanksgiving. If you read through the book of Psalms, you will notice that more often than not, at some point in the Psalm, you will find the word thank. It is drenched throughout the Psalms. And it's because the heart of the Christian is a heart of gratitude and we do not arbitrarily give thanks. We give thanks uniquely to the one who deserves it. And our gratitude is anchored there. Just to give you a couple of illustrations from the Psalms. Psalm 107, oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. There is not a day in my life where I cannot thank God for his steadfast love. If the only reason that I ever go to the Lord in prayer is thanksgiving, then I will frequently be there, because everything that comes to my life that is worth gratitude is is given unto him. It must go forth in thanksgiving to our God. Psalm 7:17 7, says this, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. 1 Thessalonians 5:18 in this list of commands that he gives to the church as they await the final day, He says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Saints, if we are being called and commanded to thank our God, we are being called and commanded to prayer. We are being called and commanded to draw near to Him, to thank Him for all of the ways that He has blessed and cared for us. And hear me, even in 1 Thessalonians where this is cited, He says, give thanks in all circumstances. That is to say that there is not a single circumstance where you cannot pause and be grateful to God for His good favor on you. Because sincerely, if you have Christ, if you have fellowship with God through the finished work of His Son, you have an infinite reason to be thankful And not only do you have an infinite reason to be thankful, you will be given the opportunity by his grace to eternally express that in heaven. We go forth being thankful, and we're thankful in all circumstances. And so we go forth praying. What is prayer? Prayer is a going to God to enjoy him, to delight in him, to seek help in times of need, to make our requests known to him, and to express great gratitude toward him. Now, Prayer is first a going to God, but I must add another. Prayer is a joyful labor and an expression of Christian warfare. I want you to notice the way that the Apostle Paul speaks of prayer. First, he says this in Romans fifteen thirty. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. You notice the way that Paul speaks about this. He speaks about it ultimately as a labor, that this is something that we do, that we spend our lives striving together. There's a corporate nature in our prayers. And hear me, that is not necessarily saying that corporate prayer is the only prayer that is together. It is essentially saying that as we are praying for one another, we are actively striving together. That the throne room of grace may be assaulted with the very same request. This is why we share with one another our needs, the things that we are desperately asking the congregation to pray for. Is that the throne of grace may be assaulted in the most glorious of senses with the needs of the church. That every saint would be praying for this very need and that God would grant the request. And so Paul appeals, strive, labor in this together. And then he goes on a little bit further in Colossians 4.12, not only does he call prayer a striving, but he calls prayer a struggling. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Struggling in prayer on the behalf of his people, on behalf of the people that he loves and holds dear. So yes, we say that that prayer is a going to God, but we must also say and joyfully say that prayer is a labor, a joy-filled labor. And so we strive together and we struggle for one another in Christian prayer, but we must also recognize that the conclusion of Ephesians 6's armor of God is a call to prayer. Prayer. Ephesians 6.18 says this, "'Praying at all times in the Spirit, "'with all prayer and supplication to that end, "'keep alert with all perseverance, "'making supplication for all the saints, "'that a great act of Christian warfare "'is simply going to the throne room of grace.'" The concept of making war is not a making war in human terms. This is why Ephesians 6 is so clear that saying that you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You wrestle against principalities and powers. That if you want to actually fight the Christian life, if you want to make war in a Christian way, that means you're often on your knees praying to the God of grace that you will find help. And not only help for yourself, but help for your brothers and sisters in the household of faith. And so we must say that prayer is a striving, is a struggling, it is warfare, and it is a good and wonderful warfare. And it is weapons that can never be taken from you. If we are stripped of every right, if every blessing that we have, if every Bible is yanked from our hands, nothing can keep us out of the throne room of grace. By God's grace and through the finished work of Christ, he has given us complete and perfect access throughout all eternity. This is a high blessing of heaven. And so we go forth, striving and struggling and fighting the good fight as the Lord has called us to do that. Now, that is what prayer is. And hopefully what I'll do over the next little bit is lay out to you what we are to be praying for. And hopefully you will notice a simple thread here. What are we to be praying for? The scripture is quite clear. There's ample, ample text that lay out what we are to be praying for. But let's just list a few. First, we pray for workers to be sent into the harvest as we did last week. Matthew 9, 37 through 38 says this, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The call of the Christian is to be active in prayer, pleading with the Lord that he would send people to go and to proclaim the gospel that the elect might be gathered in. So we are to be active in prayer, ultimately praying that the great commission would come to fruition, that God's promise of conquering the world with the good news of Christ would be brought about. And so we pray for workers to be sent into the harvest. Further, we pray for the Lord's return. Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. At the conclusion of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John's final prayer is, even so, come. The heart of the Christian longs for the day of glory, delighting in it, seeking it, longing to see it be brought about. And so we continue to pray that the Lord would come, that he would bring that great day of glory about. And so we go forth saying, and perhaps it is, it is a small and brief prayer, but the brief prayer is, even so, Lord, come. Further, we pray in order to adore. Matthew 6, 9, looking at the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. One of the sweetest and most inexhaustible works of prayer is adoring the one to whom we pray. We pray in order to adore. Saints, perhaps it is that you find that your prayer life is often frail and perhaps it is that you seem to repeat the very same things over and over again. How deeply are you exploring your God? Because if you are and you long to adore him, saints, There is a wonderful privilege and a wonderful fuel to prayer that simply comes from knowing your God, looking into him, finding comfort and rest in him, looking at him from the perspective of his attributes, his mercy, his love, his grace, his patience. And should we go on praying in light of those things, it would seem as though the Christian would never lack content in his prayer. We go and we pray to adore him, to delight in him, to worship him. Matthew 6, 9, this introduction to the Lord's prayer begins this way, simply recognizing who he is praying to. This is the son praying to the father, as it were, and he says, holy is your name. How full of adoration should the church be as they seek, as they seek and delight in the presence of God. So we pray in order to adore We also pray for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10, rather simple phrasing. I imagine the vast majority of us have the Lord's Prayer memorized. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. John Gill rather helpfully comments on this saying this. In this petition, the disciples were taught to pray for the success of the gospel, both among Jews and Gentiles, for the conversion of God's elect in which the kingdom of God would greatly appear, to the destruction of the kingdom of Satan and the abolition of the kingdom of the beast in the latter day, which will usher in the kingdom of the mediator. He will receive from his father, and this will terminate in the kingdom of glory. What unique fuel for prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Burn down, Lord, the kingdoms of darkness and. may the kingdom of light the kingdom of Christ flourish and expand not only in this world but in the world to come and so we go forth praying your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and we do so with great zeal pleading not only because we long to see it come to come to fruition but because the Lord Jesus taught us to pray in this way your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray for our daily needs. Matthew 6, 11, give us this day our daily bread. Perhaps one of the great faults of such a prosperous culture is we fail to recognize that every need that is met in your life is met by Christ. You go to the grocery store and there's always food there. Never, never fail to recognize that it's there because God providentially put it there. Every time you eat, it's from his good hand. Every time you drink water and your thirst is satisfied, it's from him. It is natural, it is ordinary, but it is his providence. It is such a shame that we do not recognize that we really do need to be praying, Lord, satisfy our need. Give us the bread that we need for this very day. And this goes deeper than just our natural needs. It goes all the way to the inner man. Satisfy us is the essence of this prayer. Keep us. Protect us, provide for us. And what a dependent heart, prays! this. It says, I am insufficient in and of myself to bring any need, to meet any need for myself. All of it must come from you. And perhaps one of the most obvious ones is the simple air we breathe. There is not a single moment, saints, where you are not being provided for. And so he calls us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Further, we pray for the forgiveness of sins and deliverance from temptation, Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts. How sweet that is to pray. We don't pray that prayer with the appropriate confidence often. Saints, when you pray that prayer, you are praying essentially, Lord, give me eyes to see and to understand the forgiveness that has been purchased by Christ. You understand that, right? When we pray for forgiveness, we are not praying for something that might come to fruition. We are depending upon something that has already occurred. We are delighting in the fact that Jesus has already, by his grace, forgiven us our trespasses. When we pray, Lord, forgive us our debts, we are essentially saying, oh, to rest in the riches of Christ's mercy and grace, to delight and to find confidence there. When we pray, forgive us our debts, we pray with absolute confidence knowing that if Christ has atoned for us, our debts are forgiven. It is essentially a prayer of rest and confidence that he who is promised is faithful. So we pray, Lord, forgive us our debts, but then we also pray, and rightly so, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Saints, I imagine that you, like me, often wrestle with the remnants of the old man. And perhaps it is that in your struggling against the flesh and in your warring against the remnants of this old man, you begin to fight. And oftentimes I am convinced we fight with carnal weapons. No, saints. We pray to God that he would lead us not into temptation, but he would deliver us from evil. If you find that your wrestling seems to have some level of futility in it, perhaps I would simply ask you this, when was the last time you asked God to deliver you? When was the last time you pleaded with him, Lord, bring me out of this realm of temptation. Free me from the bondage that seems to still have some hold on me. Let the old man die. This needs to be a constant and everyday prayer for the Christian. Put it to death. Lead me not into temptation. It is a dependence upon him for protection. Further, we pray for the well-being and maturing of our brothers and sisters. Listen to Colossians 1.9. Listen to the heart of the apostle as he writes this. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That essentially the call here and the way that the apostle Paul is praying, he is essentially saying, Lord, sanctify them. Mature them, grow them in grace. Hear me, if you are in an active discipleship relationship with another saint of this congregation, this should be the meditation of your heart. Your prayer should be, Lord, grow them in the knowledge of God. Help them to see and to behold and to light and to delight in Jesus more frequently. May they find comfort and rest in Him. This is to be the prayer of any who is a, who are a part of the household of faith. May all of my brethren, may all of the brothers and sisters in the faith, may the be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. May they mature. And this is a, again a, a prayer that has great confidence behind it because we know, even from the pages of Romans, that He is actively working these things out for our good. Further, we pray for relief from suffering. James five thirteen through fourteen. It is no shame to pray for relief from suffering. It says this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That essentially a mark of Christian fellowship and even the pastorate is to be active in prayer for one another. They might be relieved from sickness and suffering. That is not to promise that they will be free from sickness and suffering but it is to say we have a wonderful route of hope and confidence to draw near to the throne room of grace. And if there is anywhere that I long to be in the midst of my sickness and my suffering, it is to draw near to the throne room of grace, knowing this, that if my sickness and my suffering lead to my death, I will arrive back at the throne room of grace in but a moment. There's great confidence in our prayers. Further, we pray for those who persecute us Matthew 5:44 through 45 But I say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven That means those men who are so wicked who are so vile to war against Christ's church it is our responsibility under the commands of Christ to pray for them to pray for them, longing, hear me, saints, longing that they may reach repentance, a true desire to see them converted and fleeing unto Christ for refuge. And then, oh, how their striving against the church will cease. They will be like the Apostle Paul who becomes a minister of the gospel instead of a persecutor of the church. So we pray for those who persecute us. And finally, we pray for kings and all who are in high positions. 1 Timothy 2, one through two. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That we are to be actively praying for those whom God in his providence has placed in authority over us, In the simple phrase, I urge prayers and supplications be made for all people. That is to say that there is no type of person that is exempt from our prayers, that we should be actively praying one for another, praying for those who are in authority, praying for those who are impoverished, and praying those that are on our same economic levels. There is no one exempt, ultimately, from our prayers. In summary, then, if I could bring this somewhat to a simple phrase the commands for prayer are rather broad, meaning that if we're to understand the Christian life and understand it appropriately, even in light of clear passages that make reference that our prayer should be constant, that our prayers should be without ceasing, I would maybe summarize it this way, that if it is a thought in the mind of the Christian, then it is an excellent candidate for prayer. I think the purest forms of prayer in the life of the Christian is this, that so long as we have a conscious thought, it should be driven to the throne room of grace. It is often that we are arbitrarily thinking, but in every and any moment that we have, when we are aware of our own meditations and aware of our own thoughts, why not bring it to the throne room of grace? It's a better place to work it out than in your own head. We go there. And we seek his counsel, we seek his wisdom, we seek his help, we bring our request and we pray for any and everything that the Lord has called called us to pray for. There is nothing that is exempt from this. And so he drives us in every one of these commands, he drives us back to the throne room of grace and says, Draw near. What a wonderful request from our king! That this king does not desire distance from his people, but nearness. There is no king like him that bids every subject come and not only bids every subject comes but gives the same amount of glorious attention to each and every citizen. This is our king and he bids us to come to him. And as we do, what a blessing we have to meet with him, to draw near to him, to find comfort and rest and pleasure and joy with him. Now, I am convinced that the reason that Jude penned this command in light of everything that he's been working through is that this needed to be commanded. Essentially, that is to say that the natural inclination, the carnal inclination of the heart is not to draw near to the throne room of grace. And further than that, I'm convinced in light of the book of Jude, in light of spiritual warfare that's often mentioned in tandem with prayer, is that there are real tactics and real hindrances to our prayer and drawing near to the throne room of grace. Now, I want to give you a few and hopefully shoot them all dead. So the first, what are some hindrances to prayer in the Holy Spirit? The first is this, you must be a Christian, If you are not a Christian, there is no means for you to pray in the Holy Spirit. And perhaps that is a rather obvious, simple hindrance. But hear me, I listen to people all the time tell me about how they pray and seek the Lord while they have rejected Christ as their mediator. There is no room for entrance in the throne room of grace apart from Jesus Christ. The only reason we get to go with such confidence is because He is there. It's because He is our mediator, because we have been washed by His blood, because we have been brought near by His finished work. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, hear me. Your prayers are not the prayers of a son to a father. It's to an enemy against the one He has committed the crime against. You need a mediator. You need someone to stand in the gap. And if you desire to pray in the Holy Spirit, if you desire nearness and fellowship with God, you cannot have it apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith is necessary. The regeneration, the birth of the Spirit is necessary for you to draw near with confidence. John 3 makes this clear. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you be born of the Spirit. How dare we think that we can traipse into it? No, no to pray in the Holy Spirit, it is necessary that we be in Christ. But the beauty is that all those who are in Christ pray in the Holy Spirit. And so for us to draw near, we must be in the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, another hindrance, a hindrance for the Christian is this. We often disbelieve our acceptance before God. We believe it's a lesser acceptance than it actually is and so you think that your nearness to God is somewhat pseudo, that it's hindered. But can I just simply read you a simple verse about Christ's work? First Peter chapter three, verse 18 says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, listen to this, that he might bring us to God. Did Christ fail in his labors? Perish the thought. God forbid it. The reality is that if Christ has atoned and washed us by his blood, the completion of his work is that he brings us to God. We are no longer aliens and strangers. We are no longer enemies. We are sons and daughters. We are citizens of that glorious kingdom. The reality is that in Christ's finished work, he brings us to God and does so perfectly. One of the great enemies of the Christian is not resting in Christ's finished work as you make your way there. Because the reality is, saints, every time you go, go there you're probably 10 minutes away at bare minimum from your last sin and yet you can still go with absolute confidence because your entry is not based upon how good you have been in the last 30 minutes your entrance is based on is Christ enough and if Christ is enough then I can draw near with a heart full of assurance and with confidence because I draw near through his blood And so a hindrance is a disbelief of your acceptance before God. And for that, we must meditate on the gospel. Another hindrance is this, a self-sufficient spirit. Hear me, if you think you've got it all together, there's no reason for you to draw near to the throne of grace. If you have every pleasure, every joy that this world will offer, and that's enough for you, there's no reason for you to draw near to God. If you really don't desire and need that fellowship, then why would you go? And if you can do everything by the works of your own hand, if you need not the sovereign hand of God and his sweet providence over your life, there's no reason for you to draw near to the throne of grace. God forbid we have a self-sufficient spirit. It is so contrary to those who are born again and truly walking in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Revelations 3, 17 through 18 say. For you say, I am rich. Rich people need not ask for God's provision. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing this, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Saints, if you want to lay hold of any identifying mark for your life, it's this. I am, apart from Christ, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And it will drive you to the throne room of grace like nothing else. Because you truly are needy, never for a second believe that you can be satisfied truly apart from fellowship with God. We must recognize that we are always needy before God, and we must recognize also that He is always enough for our need. And we draw near with hearts full of assurance yet again. A self-sufficient spirit is a great enemy of Christian prayer, and it is warfare against you drawing near and finding true rest and completeness in Him again another. One of the great hindrances of prayer is a refusal of embracing authenticity and intimacy. I told a couple of friends as I was preparing this, there are points of developing Christian prayer that largely make me blush. And here's what I mean by that. There's corporate prayer that we speak of. And then there is a level A unique, hear me, saints, and I pray to God that each of you have this. There is a level of intimacy and nearness, of bareness as it is before God, that is sweet and truly meant to be between you and your God. It is fuel for the soul, it encourages and strengthens like nothing else. And my prayer is that. You don't approach God like Adam with fig leaves, but you draw near confidently and that you are able to truly express authenticity, that you're able to express intimacy with God in ways that you can't even with your spouse. This is the one, as we have already heard read, who knit you together in your mother's womb. You think there's anything you can hide from him? What a juvenile thought. I'll never forget the day I was driving down the road meditating upon a sin that I had previously committed and thinking to myself, uh, I don't want to pray about it because then God will know. Some of us act like that in our own prayer lives. You think that the difficulty, the trial, the tribulation, the deep anguish of your soul, you cannot bring it to your God. God demands you bring it to him. And not only does he demand you bring it to him, you're expecting to be healed and to recover in the midst of such pain and such sorrow, but you won't bring it to your God who is able to heal you. Saints, it is a sorrowful thing that we do not express intimacy before our God. We have a great deal in common with our first father, Adam. Cover not yourselves. Draw near his children. Lay on your face before him. Express great intimacy and authenticity. Hide nothing from him because nothing is hidden from him. No, we must draw near in an authentic and intimate way. Yes, saints, he is our king. But we must also remember and recognize that he is our God, that he is our groom. And in doing so, perhaps it is that the number one thing that is missing and the number one hindrance of your prayer life is you believe certain topics are off the table. No, Nothing is off the table. Listen again to the intimate language of Psalm 139. Listen to verse one and two for a moment. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw me, my unformed substance. No one else, no one else has this view. No one knows you like your God who knit you together. He says this, your eyes saw my unformed substance and your books were written, every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, there should be nothing off the table in your prayer life, saints. I would plead with you, and I don't even know a better way to communicate it, but it is a tragedy that Christians come hindering themselves from intimate fellowship with Christ from drawing near in a true way. We come pontificating and we come with eloquent words and these eloquent words often hinder true prayer. Finally, an overemphasis on eloquence is a great hindrance. God has explicitly stated this, by the way, in Matthew 6, 7 through 8, rather clearly, explicit. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. That is to say that God is not particularly interested in how eloquent you are in your private prayer life. Isn't it interesting that in our own private prayer life, we still think that there must be some form of reverence? And hear me, there must be some form of reverence. You are not going into a courthouse. You're going before the eternal King. But the eternal King demands that you come as you are. And as he demands he comes like you are, the only thing that really makes you acceptable is the finished work of Christ. You do not have to put on a show before him. This is a great enemy because it, it, it really is a denial when all is said and done about the realities that are conveyed in Romans 8, that there really are times when your words simply fail. And a simple way that I think about it is my daughter has broken and often confusing sentences but her voice captures my attention like no one else. When she calls to me, I hear it. Even the voice of my son who, I, who has no real thought behind it except for need, I hear and recognize. And you go. He says, I don't know why we think that God is a worse father than us. No. He says, come, draw near. His ways are so much higher than our ways. There is no sentence you can form that's going to impress the living word. Finally, and perhaps one that will keep us ensnared the most, a great hindrance is this. You are a rare visitor. That means that oftentimes as we are rare visitors, your feet have been so felled in the throne room of grace that you feel as if they can no longer tread there. Perhaps it is that you can even consider this from the perspective of entering into another person's house. There are some people you develop such a relationship with that you simply walk in the door. There's no knock, there's no ring, you just enter. And oftentimes when distance is brought about from our own lack of prayer, we feel as though we cannot go, that we must continue to knock, or perhaps it is we must have someone else bring us into that throne room. Saints, we have someone else who brought us into that throne room. The reality is that if you have failed to pray for a week or for a month, you still have the same confidence to enter if you belong to Jesus. Listen to what Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen to this. Let us then with confidence, because we have a high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is not about your frequency of coming into the throne room of grace. It's about who is bringing you there. The confidence that we have is not because we have been uniquely pious. The confidence we have is that we have a wonderful and faithful high priest. Now, what then is the help? And oh, what a wonderful help we have. Notice the language that we have in our text. Praying in the Holy Spirit. This word in is one that we really do especially when we're speaking of how we are in Christ developed somewhat of a of a whole scheme of thought. When we say we're in Christ, we're essentially saying we are in Christ in a similar way that Noah was in the ark the concept is i live there my whole existence is in him i rest in him i delight in him i labor in him my whole life is built upon the reality that i am in the lord jesus christ and saints in a very similar way our prayers are in the holy spirit meaning that they are essentially accompanied and empowered and we are given great confidence because of the reality that the spirit is active in our praying And so to say this, the great help of the Christian is that we pray in the Holy Spirit. Much like we live in Christ, we draw near through and by the Holy Spirit. We dwell in Him. Thomas Manton summarizes this concept like this. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying through the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit. And I want to give you, kind of building that out, I want to give you two major categories of how the Spirit helps us in prayer. First, the Holy Spirit reminds us of our position as we pray. Ultimately, granting us great confidence now two major concepts here first the Holy Spirit tells us of our sonship twice we find this exact phrase in the pages of Holy Scripture one in Romans 8 that's going on to deal with prayer and also in Galatians chapter 4 Galatians chapter 4 6 through 7 says this and because you are sons God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The basic principle is this. The first cry of the spirit's entry, and it is not a singular cry as if it does not continue throughout the entirety of the Christian life. That first cry is this. You're a son. You're a son, you're a daughter. The position is made abundantly clear. The cry of the one who is indwelt by the spirit of God is that I belong to him. He is my father. And be reminded for just a moment that that was a blasphemous statement when Romans and Galatians was written. To say that he is my father, to say Abba Father to this king who is high and lifted up, it was perfectly appropriate to say God is Israel's father in a collective sense. But the reality is that what Romans and Galatians is setting forth is a personal aspect to the fatherhood of God. When the Holy Spirit indwells us, when we are praying in the Holy Spirit, he is actively reminding us that you are not simply servants, but you are also sons. And it is a unique call in prayer, a unique confidence, even in our day-to-day life, when we seek after an earthly father who honors the Lord. Is there not a sweet and immediate response from him so long as he is honoring Christ? Yes, as it is, we do not have an earthly father that we are crying out to in prayer, but we have one who is infinitely better. And as He is infinitely better, we call to Him, we cry to Him, and we cry to Him as His children. Not only does the Spirit remind us that we are His, we are his children, the Spirit also reminds us that we are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Again, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The place of Christian worship is his people. It is not a location. It is not a particular area or sphere of the world. It is his church and saints. The beauty of this is, and I think it's a sweet reminder, that prayer is not just a making our requests known to him. Prayer is a practice of worship in day-to-day life. Of dependence upon Christ, of rejoicing in Him, delighting in Him, fellowshipping in Him. And there is no area in which we must go because the Spirit of God indwells us. We are the place of worship, and thus we are the place of prayer. Finally, the Holy Spirit helps make our prayers efficacious, meaning effective. This is important, especially in the midst of the deepest possible pain. I imagine that all of us have had moments where it's simply, I have no words. I'll tell you that twice this week, I had that exact occurrence and I can't express the gratitude toward the spirit of God that in the midst of my failing voice, the spirit failed not that he is able to pray on my behalf, intercede, even makes the groanings of the heart effective before God, that he hears, that he sees. And not only does he hear and that he sees, but he does so in an understandable way. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Thomas Manton beautifully. Words are only the outside of prayer. Sighs and groanings are the language that God understands. And these are the prayers that the Holy Spirit makes for us and in us. And I want to take that phrase for just a minute. Not only does he make the, the times that our words fail effective, but he also is the one who births these things in us. That these prayers that really do flow out, that that intimacy before the Lord happens because you know that the Spirit of God is actively working in you to make those acceptable before God, to know that they truly do not just hit the ceiling, but they sky, they fly all the way to heaven. And so we rest knowing that the Spirit does groan with us, but He also, in that groaning, it is actual intercession, that there is an action of the Spirit that is not only birthing prayer in us, but an active praying for us. Romans 8, 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What's most interesting about this is the Spirit is indwelling, the Spirit is interceding, and it seems as though the thrust of Romans 8 is that the Spirit of God births these prayers and that the Father accepts these prayers as if they are our own, which is not uncommon in the economy of the new covenant. The reality is that God gives us faith but birthed by the Spirit and He receives it as if it is our own. That God births love in us and as we love him, he receives it as if it is from us, though we know that it is from him. The common economy of the new covenant is he does things in us, he grants us unique privileges and benefits, and then he accepts them as if they came from us. It is an incredible economy filled with grace and glory. So the Spirit of God is actively with us. And these two are not light. They are massive for us. The reason that we can draw near is because the Spirit reminds us that we are the temple of God and that we are His children. And finally, when we fail in our language and we feel as if we have no words, the Spirit of God is actively groaning in us and having those prayers reach the throne room of grace and being well-received because the Spirit prays according to the will of God. Now, final point. Why then is prayer in the Holy Spirit so important as we contend for the faith? Because we don't want to detach this. We can't suck this verse out of the book of Jude. We need to make sure that it's exactly where it's placed in the canon. And so let me give a couple of reasons. First, Praying in the Holy Spirit is, a, is a, a way in which we keep ourselves in the love of God. It is a way in which we are actively building ourselves, yourselves up in the most holy faith. And then to maybe give a little bit of a, just a couple of points, because contending for a king you don't fellowship with is wildly dangerous. It's wildly dangerous. I see men often warring and they love the contention, they love the conflict, but their warring is quite cold. And it is normally those men who I watch flame out over the years. Because there is a warring, there's a contending, there's conflict that that, that seemingly these men love, but there is no warmness in their soul. Hear me, saints, you are not to coldly and callously contend. You are to actually contend for something that you love, for a king that you have fellowship with, for a king that you adore. And the reality is that first call of prayer is delighting in the presence of God, rejoicing and fellowshipping with him. And saints, if you are not doing that, then you are essentially betraying your own soul. You're putting on a show. You're literally the person that 2 Timothy is is, is considering, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That does not end well. It leads to a distant, uncaring, and cold contending, and normally it ends up totally flaming out. It is not sustainable. If you love the conflict but you don't want to draw near to God, I would plead with you, cease your striving for a moment and draw near to the throne room of grace. Know what you're contending for. Further, because one of the greatest ways we contend is in prayer. Hear me, if you are always at war, if you live your life being a keyboard warrior or looking forward to waging war in some in some public arena, but you are not actively praying for those who you are warring against and you're not actively praying for those who you contend for, then you are simply a child playing war. The reality is that if we truly want to war, if we want to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, it is most efficiently done on our knees. And so we war in God's economy. Further, because prayer is a shield that we place before our brothers and sisters, listen to our Lord pray for Peter. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. We should mimic our Lord in his prayers here that one of the strivings in the midst of this as we will even go further in our text to consider the unique mercies that we should have toward our brothers and sisters who may be being swept up by these false teachers is that we must place a shield about them in the way that we pray for them. Pray that the Lord would keep them, sustain them, be merciful to them, grow them in grace as we see the Apostle Paul do in Colossians 1.9. It is a shield and it is meant to be a shield, finally, because prayer is the foremost prescribed method of warfare against the church's enemies. Again, I would point you to Ephesians 6.18. The conclusion, the paramount moment of the armor of God is not seemingly launching yourself into the world, but it's launching yourself into the throne room of grace. Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. This is the conclusion of what it means to war and to labor in Christ's kingdom is that we are actively praying and we are waging war in that sphere for it is the best of spheres. J. Sidlow Baxter, a man who trained at Spurgeon's uh, Preacher's College said this, men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. That as we war saints, the reality is men may spurn you, hate you, war against you tooth and nail, but they can do nothing to prevent you to bring them before the throne of grace. And so we war in this way, and if I could maybe bring this somewhat to a conclusion, the two realities of the book of Jude and this command of praying in the Holy Spirit is first, that as we are building ourselves up in the most holy faith, there is a natural and and crucial activity of drawing near to God, delighting in Him, fellowshipping with Him, trusting that Christ has brought us there. And so we go, that we might build up not only our own souls, but the souls of all the body that we are a part of. And then secondly, that prayer is a crucial and and paramount weapon of warfare as we contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered. Saints, this is a privilege. It is a privilege and it is a joy and it is meant to be a pleasure. I would plead with you in your own spiritual growth, do not neglect this. And further, as you contend for the faith, go to your knees frequently, warring in that wonderful and warm place of the throne room of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, It is a sad estate how frequently we forget about the glory of calling you, Father. And further than that, even, to have audience with the King. Father, I pray that you would remind us of the sweetness of this place, remind us of the blessings of gathering together with the saints and coming to the throne room of grace. Lord, that each soul is brought near, each soul comes before him and is welcomed, not because we are righteous, but because we have a wonderful mediator. And Father, I pray that you would help us in this. Give us a great zeal, a great desire. Lord, would you cast off any fig leaves that prevent us from coming and delighting in your presence. Lord, may we not bar ourselves out, but instead, Lord, may we come authentically before you. Lord, I pray for each saint here that they would have sweet love visits with Christ in the throne room of grace that they would delight in that presence, that they would be reminded of the price of drawing near. Lord, we do not come based upon anything other than the blood of Christ. What a high price. Lord, that his blood was shed, that we might be cleansed, that the spirit might anoint us and bring us near. And Father, I ask that you would help us. Pray not only for our own souls and the building up of our body, but Lord, that we would contend and that we would war in the throne room. Lord, that we would plead for those who are, who are frail and weak, that you would be a shield about them. And Lord, we pray for those false teachers, those wolves, Lord, that you would bring them to their knees. Lord, we know that you will, but we pray that by your grace, you would bring them to their knees here and now. But Lord, if you don't, we know that they will bow on the last day and confess you as Lord. And so Father, we simply ask, or we come better yet grateful for the privilege of prayer, for drawing near. And Lord, may you Remind us of its sweetness, and Lord, may we ha- may we come more frequently and more fervently. It's in the name of Jesus, and through His blood, we pray. Amen.